right, good morning, everybody. Well, we got our first really cold day here in Cleveland. It's like 20-some degrees, huh? It's okay, though. Everybody looks like they're in a good mood today. I wanted to ask you, what is your favorite scripture in the Bible? Do you have one? Do you have a favorite scripture? What's yours? I'm putting you on the spot. James 1. The whole chapter of James. Anybody else? Favorite scripture? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Okay, that's a good one. 1 Corinthians, it's about the resurrection, right? So what do you think if I asked a bunch of people in the traditional Christian uh, belief system what their favorite scriptures would be? What's one that you think is probably very popular? John 3.16, right? We see them on the... When they pan the sporting events, you, you always see someone, or very often you'll see someone with a, a poster, a sign, John 3.16, right? So, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I thought this was interesting to just look at what is, I think everyone has a favorite scripture. Mine, actually, my favorite scripture is in Joshua, talking about how God says he's with us, and so have courage, because I'm with you wherever you go. And maybe that ties back to my experience in the military. I, I really get into that. But, um, so it was interesting with the internet now and all these online Bible resources. You can go and with the, these websites like Bible Gateway and uh, some of these other Bible uh, study tools.com. They actually will post the results. They can keep track of all the different... Uh, searches, and they can tell you what are the top searched scriptures every year since they've been doing it. And I thought it'd be pretty interesting. So I just looked up at the BibleStudyTools.com, and it was year to date, 2017. And this is everybody that uses that website, and it's millions and millions of people. So the number one scripture that is most referenced or most searched, ready for it? Maybe I should do the top 10 and go from 10 backwards. <laughs> Let me do that. I'm going to start at 10. Number 10, Galatians 5.22, the fruits of the Spirit. So it's about your character. So people, you know, that's the 10th most looked up. Number 9, Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. Hmm. A lot of people seem to be finding themselves in trouble, and they look to that scripture. Number nine, that was the, the ninth most searched so far in 2017. Number eight, so, or Proverbs 3, Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not unto your own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Another looking to God to help us to make good decisions in our life and show us the way. Number seven, Isaiah 41, 10. Fear you not. So again, it's kind of implying that there's a lot of people that are afraid out there. Fear you not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and I will help you. I will uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. Very good scripture as well. Romans 8.28 was number six. And we know that all things work for the good for those who love God. Number five, John 3.16. Is that surprising? That was number five in 2017. Now, if I look in previous years, it's usually number one. But for some reason this year, it's number five. John 3.16. All right, here we go. Number four, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Again, people are finding themselves weak or in need of strength or comfort. Number three, top searched scripture from BibleStudyTools.com. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. It's a love chapter, talking about love. Number two, anyone want to take a guess? Number two. Most searched? 
What's that? No. It's in the Old Testament. That's it. Psalm chapter 23. The whole verse, the whole chapter, was the number two most searched scripture this year in 2017. And number one, and this was surprising because Jeremiah 29, verse 11. Anyone have that memorized? Jeremiah 29, verse 11? This is the number one search scripture in 2017. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not evil, to give you an expected end. I thought that was interesting, that that was the number one searched. But uh, what's interesting to me as I looked at this, most of these dealt with wanting to find comfort from God or peace. It tells me that there's a lot of people that are stressed out in the world and they're looking to God when they, for that comfort and guidance and peace as they look at these scriptures. So that was the most popular, those were the most popular scriptures. What, do you, what would you say, let me see if I keep looking at this theme, what's the shortest scripture in the Bible? Anyone know what the shortest scripture in the Bible is? John 11, 35. I think I heard it. Jesus wept. The shortest scripture in the Bible. There was a a guy on the radio, I think I might have mentioned him a few times because I listened to him. Some of you that have heard my sermons probably know who I'm going to talk about. I I listened to Dennis Prager. I like like some of his... his, uh, angles that he takes on things don't always agree or disagree but it's kind of interesting but he had a video one time I saw called the the most important verse in the Bible so these are the most popular I saw the shortest and his argument for what is the most important verse in the Bible was pretty interesting he referenced a lot of these he said you know people might think that John 3:16 is the most important etc but he said that the most important verse of the Bible is Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Hmm. That's interesting. Why would he say that that's the most important verse in the Bible? Well, his argument is that, well, if God didn't create everything, then none of this even matters. It's because God created everything that everything has a purpose. If he created it, then there's a purpose for it. It says that God is above all of creation. You know, all the pagan religions, they worshipped creation, didn't they? All the pagan religion out there, they worshipped the stars and trees and animals and frogs. You think of the plagues from Egypt. The reason God gave them all those plagues is because those were the gods that they were worshipping. The pagans worship the creation. Genesis 1 puts God above all of the creation because he is the creator. That's a good argument. The Bible is valid because God is the creator. And as the creator, God has the right to define what's right and wrong. So that's, for me, some very, very strong arguments that he makes about why Genesis 1.1 is the most important verse in the Bible. I think there's some logic. Now, this is all subjective stuff. It's really just based on opinion. But it's interesting, as I think through these and you think about some of these verses, but I want to have a different question, a different challenge to you. Even if you agree with Dennis Prager that Genesis 1.1 is the most important verse in the Bible, and I think there's many other scriptures and you can make good arguments of those other ones, But I'd like to ask you, what is the greatest scripture in the Bible? The greatest scripture. All right, now how can we come up with the greatest scripture in the Bible? It's just like your opinion. Well, yeah, it'll be my opinion. But I think that I can make an argument, and hopefully... After I make the argument, you might agree with me that what I'm going to share with you actually is the greatest scripture in the Bible. Now, there is a bunch of scriptures in the Bible, and you can say, Dave, it's all God's word. It's all great. It's all critical. We're to live by every word in here. I still think I can make an argument of the greatest scripture in the Bible. 
So that's what I want to do today. I want to go through a little bit of this and try to make my case. You know, there's all these things. We see all this stuff right now with all these lawyers and investigations. Well, I'm going to make a case as a lawyer of why I think that this scripture I'm going to read is the greatest one. But before I do that, I want to start with a concept that I learned from a business book I read. This business book was written by a guy named Simon Sinek. Anyone know, anyone know of Simon Sinek? Some of you out there on the, the video might know. Well, he wrote a book that's pretty popular over the past few years. And it was a concept of, of marketing and of building a brand and selling and, and influencing people. And at the end of the day, if you're in business, what are you trying to do? Influence people to buy your products, right? And before I get into this, I'm going to ask you a question. How many of you are total Apple people? Apple and Mac. I have a few hands. How many of you are PC people? <laughs> I admit it. I'm a PC person, but I have an iPhone. Now, would you agree that some of these iPhone people or Apple people are kind of crazy? I mean, come on. They line up for lines. There's a new release, and the day before, it's like a rock concert. They're lining up out there to get the next greatest thing. Did you know that people that buy Apple pay one and a half to two times more? Now, if I look at this, I've got a phone here. This is an iPhone. And I like it. I like the iPhone. It's a good product. But is the camera any higher resolution than any of the other phones out there? No. In fact, some of the other phones have better resolution cameras. How about the storage? Can an iPhone store more data than a Samsung or some of these other phones? No. There's phones out there that have better storage. How about speed? Software. Apps. Function for function it's probably no different than any of the other top phones out there on the market. Well, then why do people pay one and a half to two times the price just to have an iPhone or an Apple? Is it because of what this is? No, there's something else there, isn't it? Something else that people connect to when they connect to the company Apple. I don't connect to it. It doesn't connect with me and my personality. But I know there's a lot of people out there that somehow it connects with them in a way that makes them stand in lines in the cold to get a phone, which I think is kind of crazy. But, that's, but it's pretty brilliant, too. And so this guy, Simon Sinek, wanted to get underneath this, say, what is the reason for, for this behavior? Why can some companies connect with people and others can't? I'll share another example real quickly before I get into this. I want to confess something about when I was in high school, in, in elementary school, in junior high. I actually failed history. I did. I hated it. I hated history when I was growing up. I liked math and science. I did well in those. But I hated history. You know why I hated it? Because every day in class, history class, my teacher would get up there with, remember they had those transparencies with the overhead? And we'd put it on there, and I'd be sitting in class and get my notebook, and she would literally be writing an outline of what happened in dates. In 1642, Columbus, you know, it's just, ah, uh, just write it down. And then the test was memorizing all these stupid dates. Anyone have that experience for history class? How many of you loved history when, it, when you were a kid? Darren, the history teacher. <laughs> All right, well, I hated it. But then something happened to me. I went to college, and I had to take a history class to, as an elective. It was a requirement. So I took American history, and I'm sitting in the class, and my teacher says, there's no book. You mean, I mean, history books were about three inches thick. Remember those things? There's no book in this class. You're, you are all 
going to be historians. You know, historians didn't live there. How do you know that what's in the history book actually took place? Do you just believe it blindly just because it's in the book? There was some person just like you that looked at a whole bunch of readings and writings and evidence and geology and everything else, and they tried to piece together what happened. And then they wrote it. They might be wrong. So you're going to be the historian. And we got into things. We started reading. Every week we got all these documents and we started getting into it. And, that, and the whole time, that teacher never asked me one date. She could care less if I memorized what happened when. What she wanted me to learn in that class was not what happened, not even how it happened. She wanted me to learn why it happened. That connected with me. After that class, I loved history. In fact, I still love history. When I get books, I'm getting books on history because when you start to understand why something happens, that gets interesting. And that is what Simon Sinek, in his book, this business book, keyed in on. The title of his book is Start With Why. Start with why. Not with what, not with how. He says most people, when you ask them what they do, they tell you what they do. What do you do? I sell computers. Oh, really? How do you do that? Oh, well, I, I make them with really good products and high high-tech and high-performance processors want to buy one? And people are like, well, yeah, there's a thousand companies out there that sell computers with really good stuff. But Apple, Apple does it differently. With Apple, they tell you why they exist, what they're all about. At Apple, we strive to push the status quo. We want to be different. We do this by making computers and phones and everything else that are stylishly designed and high performance. Want to buy one? And all those people that want to be different like Apple, that have the same why that motivates them, they, they line up to get the products. It's the why, the why that connects with people. It's why you do what you do that gets people to either be influenced by you or not. It's not what you do, it's why you do it. Why is the force that drives action? You ever wonder some of these athletes that are just crazy? All they do is train from morning till night. They can't think of anything. I saw this video. There was this, I think I might have even referenced it, this uh, MMA fighter. It was a real popular fight that was just on with um, Colin McGregor. Anyone ever hear of Colin McGregor? He's a very popular mixed martial arts fighter. He came from kind of rags to riches. I saw a video of him one time, and he says, you have to be crazy for your craft. And that's all he thought about from morning till night. Was wanted, he wanted to be champion. He wanted to, he pictured, he visualized himself as a good dad and as, as wealthy and and he was going to be the champion. And he actually, through all of his hard work, he, he achieved his goal. But there was a why that motivated him. The why, brethren, is what drives us and motivates us to do things that are exceptional. Not the what and not the how. So with that as the backdrop, the why being the most important thing, let me ask you this question. Because we study the Bible, we learn all about the history of the Bible, we learn about what happened to the ancient Israelites, we learn about what happened to Abraham and how God called Abraham and brought him over to, uh, from over there in Babylon and Samaria over to where, where Jerusalem is today, Israel is today. We read about all the stories of Shadrach Meshach and Abednego, the fiery furnace. We learn about how God's doing his plan. How he's, well, through the holy days, he's showing us how he's doing it. But let me ask you, what is God's why? 
What is his why? You ever wonder about that? More people follow Jesus than they'll ever follow Apple. There's a why there that inspires people. It inspired people throughout history to give up their lives for Jesus. There's a why there, brethren, that is compelling and motivating. And it explains a lot and helps put everything in this world in, good, in perspective. So I want to do that today in this sermon. I want to say, what is God's why? I want to explore that. First of all, I want to reference back in Genesis chapter 1, yes, God is the creator. We should establish that. John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That tells us that the Word, Jesus the Christ, was with God, the Father, and is God, so it tells us God's a family. John chapter 1, verse 2, The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So Jesus the Christ, that being, the Word, was the one who actually did the making process. He actually created all of the things that, are, that we see. We can read in God's Word that everything was predestined. We are predestined. Even Jesus was predestined before the world was made to be crucified. We can read about that. Like I said, we learn about the history throughout the Bible, the holy days. But all of that, brethren, is the what and the how. So here is what I say. I want to turn with there now to the scripture that I believe is the greatest scripture in the Bible. And the reason I believe it's the greatest scripture in the Bible is because I believe that this scripture that I'm going to turn to is the why that's driving God to do everything that he's doing. Anyone want to take a guess what it is? I've given you some hints. Nope. Genesis. All the way back to Genesis. Chapter 1. Let's go back there. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, God is recreating the earth, isn't he? And we'll break in in verse 25. And God made the beasts of the earth after his kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps upon the earth after his kind, and God saw that it was good. Verse 26. And God said... Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Brethren, I submit to you that Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 is the greatest scripture in the Bible. That scripture is why God is doing everything that he's doing. It's God's specific purpose statement. That's the motive force, the driving force behind God's plan, behind the what and the how. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 19. Because we learned that God created the heavens and the earth. He created everything that we can see. That includes the stars it includes the, the galaxies out there, even the black holes out there, everything, the trees, the grass, everything we see God created. And he created it for a purpose. Romans chapter 8, verse 19. 
Okay. There we go. Romans chapter 8, verse 19. Here we read Romans chapter 8. We just read in chapter 8 from the Apostle Paul here about how he says that we are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. He talks in verse 18 about how the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared for the glory which should be revealed in us. And then he says here in verse 19, for the earnest expectation of the creature or of the creation, the creature waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. In other words, all of the creature, everything that's been created is waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity or worthlessness. That's what that means. In other words, the creation is worthless. Everything that we see is worthless in comparison to this. It was created and made subject to vanity or worthlessness, not not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of who? You. Us. Mankind. The children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. Brethren, the whole creation groans and travails and waits for the redemption of our bodies. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And the whole creation is waiting for that to happen. That's the pillar that everything is built upon. Genesis 1.26 is the great why of God. That's his why. Now I want to go and just explore this verse a little bit. Since this is God's great why scripture, why he's doing everything he's doing. If you start looking at it, it's easy to read over it quickly, but I want to break it out into two parts. The first one is let us create man in our image. What does that mean in our, in our image? Well, if you look up the, the, the word in the Hebrew, the Hebrew word is tselem, And it means a resemblance or a figure or a reflection, like a shadow or a reflection in the mirror, a reflection of God. So we are to be a reflection of God, a shadow or or a resemblance or a figure. Has anyone seen God? Has anyone seen God's image? Well, God said, Jesus said, no one has seen the Father. But people have seen Jesus, haven't they? Remember when Moses, before Jesus was a man, back in Exodus, Moses said to Jesus, or to to the word, show me your way. Show me what you look like. And we can read about that story in Exodus where where. The word said, I can't show you my face because if, I see, if you see my face, the glory is so great, you'll die. But I'll put you in this little cubby hole in this rock and I'll put my hand over you and I'll walk by you and as I walk away, you can see my back parts. God referred to him having back parts and a hand and a face. You see, that we are created in the image of God. He didn't create us to look like a dog or a cow. Our image resembles God. But it's not just how we look, brethren, in the image of God. Turn with me to John chapter 14. 
Because the apostles asked Jesus about the Father. John chapter 14. Now, this was before Jesus was crucified, and he's telling his disciples about many things. About heaven, what it's like with the spiritual realm. Talking about his father's house. He says in verse 3, or in verse 2, In my father's house are many mansions. Talking about what's revealing to them about what their destiny is. And then he says in verse 4, Whither I go, you know in, in the way you know. And Thomas said unto him, Lord, we know not where you go, and, and, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said unto him, I am the way. I am the way. The truth and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. If you had known me, you should have known my Father also. And from henceforth you know him and have seen him. So we know that Jesus came to reveal this, this God being called the Father. And he says, if you've seen me and you know me, you know the Father. And Philip was confused by this. Philip says unto him, Lord, show us the Father and it'll be enough. Just show us the Father. And Jesus said unto him, have I been so long time with you, and yet you have not known me? Philip, he that has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And the Father in me. Now did Jesus look exactly identical the way the Father looks? Well, the Father was spirit. Jesus was a human being. I doubt that they looked identically, although I don't know that. I can't prove that. But I think what we're reading here is who Jesus is, what he is, how he acts, his personality, his character, what's inside of him, his why that motivated him. He said to Philip, if you've, if you've known me, if you've seen me, then you've known the Father and you've seen the Father. He says, believe you not that I am in the Father and the Father in me, verse 10, chapter 14, verse 10, the words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwells in me, he does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me, for the work's sake. What does this mean that God wants to create us in his image? I think we have a perfect example here. God created Jesus in his image. And Jesus, everything that he did, the way he lived his life, reflected, was that reflection of the Father. And therefore, Jesus was literally the image of, of the Father. Look over here in Matthew chapter 23. I want to talk a little bit more about this. About how, to, how do we become in God's image? How do we actually live up to that? Matthew chapter 23, there's a story here where Jesus is talking to Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were the priests. They were the religious people. And they were honored and revered by the people. I just heard the thing where the, the Pope wants to change the wording of the Lord's Prayer. I don't know all the details, but it just reminded me of that. There are millions and millions and millions of people that look up to the Pope. The way the people look at the Pope today, that's how people looked at the Pharisees back then. We look at them, we think they were these bad guys. But if you go back in time into a time machine, my kids like that, the time machine concept. 
and you were to be able to go back in time, the people would be looking to the Pharisees and say, wow, these guys are righteous. They live perfectly. They keep the commandments. Though, though they are such good people, I want my children to be around them because they're role models. These were the role models of Jesus' day. Matthew chapter 23, verse 25. Jesus, and this is why he shook things up so much. That's why he, they murdered him. Because he revealed the truth about these Pharisees. What were the Pharisees doing? They were doing the what, weren't they? And the how. The what and the how was perfect. Jesus says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Yeah, on the outside, your what and your how is great. You're, you're keeping the holy days. You're keeping the Sabbath. You're not cheating on your wives. You don't swear. You say just the right things. You give money to the poor. Boy, you guys look good. You're doing all the right what, and you're doing it the right way, the how. And Jesus says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you may clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. You blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup. Within the cup and the platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like unto whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward, a dead body, where they made the body look so perfect and so beautiful. That's what Jesus is calling them, like a dead body that on the outside looks beautiful, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. And even so, you also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. The Pharisees' why was different from God's why. The Pharisees' why was about praise and adoration from the people and power. That's what was motivating them to keep all the holy days. And Jesus saw that. What that scripture tells me is Jesus is less concerned about our what and our how. What's he concerned with? What motivates us? The why behind what we do. Can you keep God's commandments perfectly and Jesus still be upset with you? Yes. If what's in here isn't right. If your why isn't aligned with God's why. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, You have heard that it was said by them of old time, You shall not kill, or whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. It's not about just not committing murder. It's about your attitude. Whether or not you love your brother or not. That's what Jesus wants to see. Jesus said in John chapter 15, red letters, this is his own words, if you love me, keep my commandments. Not if you want to get power or if you want everybody to love you, keep my commandments. No. If you love me, then keep my commandments. Love of God is the motivating force behind why we should be doing what God wants us to do. Matthew chapter 22, verse 36. Jesus, or a, a, a man came and said, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Trying to catch him up. Trying to get him to say one commandment. And Jesus answered so brilliantly because it's the truth. Jesus went right to the why of what he's doing. He wants to create man in his own image, in the character of God. What is God? God is love. 
isn't he? In his image is he wants us to be love as well. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, to have the love of God in our heart. When we have the love of God in our heart, we start to look a lot like God. And then he said, the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Everything hangs on those two. You can make an argument that that is the greatest scripture in the Bible too. Maybe they're equally great. But I still go back to let us create man in our image was the purpose of why he wanted to do it. And in his image is the love of God in our hearts. That's how we become in his image. We can read in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that we can't do it without God's spirit. He talks about how we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given unto us of God. Chapter 1 Corinthians 2.12 1 Corinthians 2.16, For who knows the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. If we have God's Spirit, then God's Spirit dwells in us, and that allows us to have the very mind of Christ. That, brethren, is how we take on the image of God. Love, God's love in our hearts and God's Spirit connected to our Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.22, this is one of those most referenced scriptures that I, read, I talked about in the beginning of the sermon. But the fruits of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Because when you're doing this, you are taking on the image of God. If you take on God's image inside of you, you don't have to worry about trying to keep the commandments. It will automatically happen. You will be keeping all the commandments out of love for God and love for fellow mankind. Romans chapter 12, 12 verse 2. I'm going to read it. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable, and the perfect will of God. So, let us make man in our image. God wants to literally see in us the very character and love that he has for all of us. Now, the second part of that scripture, after our likeness, what does that mean? After our likeness. When you look at what that means, the, the word in the Hebrew for after our likeness is demuth, and it, it, it means a model or a shape, an actual shape or model to be fashioned like the manner or similitude, to be made just the way God is made. And I believe this means by the very essence of him physically. Now, can you see God? No. God is spirit. John chapter 4, Jesus said, God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. He's made of a different essence, a different physiology. We're physical, he's spiritual. God is all powerful. Matthew 28, verse 18, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And God is eternal. Deuteronomy 33, The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms, and he shall thrust out the enemy from before you, and shall say, Destroy them. He is eternal. He is the eternal God. Never dies. Turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Michelle's favorite scripture. I remember 1 Corinthians chapter 15. After our likeness, 
God's mission in his image and then after his likeness. 1 Corinthians 15, we'll break into the text in verse 35. But some man will say, when we're resurrected, what type of body are we going to have? That's a big confusion. People think we're going to have a physical body. Well, Paul answers it here. People might say, hey, how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come? Paul says, Thou fool, that which you sow is not quickened. In other words, that which dies is not brought to life except it die. Right? That which you plant is not brought to life except it die. And that which you sow, you sow not that body that it shall be, but bear grain it may chance of wheat or some other grain. In other words, I think it's brilliant that he's using the idea of planting. You take a seed. Let's just talk about a little acorn, Right? Does that acorn look like an oak tree? No. It looks like an acorn. I have squirrels. I have squirrels put about a thousand of them in my sprinkler system last year. <laughs> little, little acorns. But you put it down into the ground and you water it. Water like the Holy Spirit goes in the ground, symbolizing death. And you water it, give it some light, and guess what it grows up into? Does it grow up into a huge acorn? Imagine it. Wow! Huge acorn in my backyard. No. It grows up into an oak tree. This beautiful tree. How did the tree come from an acorn? Well, we see this everywhere in nature. You plant something in the ground and it comes up something totally different. That's what Paul's saying here. You fool! You can even look at, at, at nature and know what God's doing here. We're physical. When we're born into spiritual, we're going to be different. And it's going to be a lot greater. An oak tree is a lot greater than an acorn. Paul says, here, verse 38, But God gives it a body as it hath pleased him, and to every seed his own body. All flesh is not the same flesh. There's a lot of different types of trees out there. God's making a point to us. But there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fish, another of birds. Remember, he said in Genesis, I created them after their kind and them after their kind. But man, creating after my kind. He says there are celestial bodies and there are bodies terrestrial. In other words, there are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For one star is different from another star in glory. Some are bright, some are dim. He said, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption, this physical whole existence. Everything in this world, this physical world is sown in corruption because it's all going to be destroyed. It all perishes. Trees die. I just read about the oldest tree on the earth. You know where it is? Yosemite National Park. 4,500 years old. It's dead. It died. Everything dies in this physical world. Stars burn out after time. Our sun at some point is going to burn out. However, God says it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body that will die, but it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. I don't know how people can read this and think that we have this immortal soul that just wafts off to heaven. This is so clear. Thank God that he's opened up our minds. 
just like that seed goes into the ground and dies and then comes up as an oak tree, we go down in the ground. I think it's very fitting. We'll all be buried in the ground someday and die, and we will be raised. Incorruptible, spiritual body. As it so is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam, talking about Jesus, referring to Jesus, was made a quickening spirit. In other words, quickening means life-giving, everlasting. It will never die. Quickening means it will never die. Howbeit that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural. In other words, the first thing was natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Wow. 1 John 3, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be. We, we know we're going to be spirit, but we don't know what it's really going to be like or what it's really going to look like. But he says here in John chapter 3, 2, but, when, but we know that when he shall appear, when Jesus Christ comes back, bursting through the clouds, and we're transformed in that spirit being, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We will be in the likeness of God at that very moment. We shall be like him. We'll receive power. Everything that Jesus can do, all the power that he has as a powerful God-spirit being, that's the body that we're going to have. We'll have the authority that he has. He says in Revelation 21 that we are to be joint. We are joint heirs with Christ. And Christ says, all things have been given to him. He has authority and power over everything. Romans chapter 8, 16, the Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so it be that we suffer with him, we may also be glorified together. After our likeness, brethren, means that he is, his mission, his why, was first to create in us his very character of love. Secondly, to transform our physical bodies into powerful, eternal, spiritual bodies that are literally the same body that he has, the same glory, the same power that will never die. You know, there are many whys that motivate people in this world. This world, there are people that want to be athletes. They want to win the Super Bowl. That's their why. There are people that want to become rich and powerful because they, they're motivated by maybe they have an inferiority complex or something. And they want to prove to the world that they're, that they're superior. That's their why. Some people just want to have a good family and love their children. That's their why. Not all wise are good. Not all wise are bad. Everyone has things inside of them that motivates them and drives them. Everyone has a why behind what they do and how they do it. I'm going to ask you, what is your why? Is it the right one? Just to shift gears a little bit now, brethren, let's go over to Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes is such an amazing book in the Bible because it's about a man named Solomon that God blessed tremendously. God blessed him with almost everything that this world could give a man both right and wrong, good and bad. He experienced life. 
There probably isn't anyone that experienced life more than Solomon experienced life. He had riches and wealth and power. He had relationships, lots of them. He had wives. He experienced everything. He built things. He tore them down. And at the end of all of his life, he wrote some books of wisdom, some words of wisdom, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Let's go back here. After all is said and done, here's what he says. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. In other words, worthlessness of worthlessness, says the preacher. All is worthless. That's what vanity means, worthless. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yea, he gave good heed and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find out acceptable words, and that which was written was upright in the words of truth. And the words of the wise are as goads and as nails fastened by the masters of assemblies, which are given from one shepherd. And further, by these, my son, be admonished. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God. Keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment and every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. What does that mean? It's the whole duty of man. Well, God created everything in this universe for one purpose, one reason, because he wanted to create man in his image after his likeness. Since that is our purpose, that is the one reason why we exist. Every one of us, it's our mission in life. That is our duty to God as our creator to live in accordance with our purpose and destiny to fear God and keep his commandments out of love. Out of love. Peter told us in 2 Peter chapter 3 that all of this physical universe, all of this earth is going to melt away. When God the Father ultimately comes down, this physical world will be transformed. And everything flesh is going to be burned up. What, what will remain, brethren, is our character and those who have been converted to that beautiful, glorious spiritual body that have realized that potential of God's why. Genesis 1.26 God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. It tells us why he created everything, the stars, the planets, the vast universe. Why he created the earth, the trees, the oceans, the mountains, the rivers, the streams, everything in it. It tells us why he created the animals. It tells us why he allows us to experience everything that this life has to throw at us both good and bad, blessings and cursings, because every experience is molding and shaping our character into the character of God, into the likeness of God. He allows us to go through these trials to teach us. It explains why before the very creation, Jesus Christ was destined to come down and die for us. It explains why Jesus had to suffer and die. He literally suffered and gave his very life to achieve that purpose so that we can be formed, made in his image and after his likeness. That, brethren, is the fundamental purpose of everything that God's doing. It's what's driving him and motivating him. It's why he was motivated to, to bring Israel out of Egypt Everything in here is motivated by that one scripture, that one verse. And that, brethren, is why I nominate that 
as the greatest scripture in the Bible.